0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. God willing, today we're going to start a new book, a uh, short epistle of St. John, um, the epistle, the first epistle of St. John. We had already studied the second and the third epistles earlier, um, and they were only one chapter. Um, first John is five chapters, so it's still short, but maybe a little longer um, than, than the other chapters. So um, as far as the, the author, so we know that the author is um, St. John uh, the Beloved, he was one of the apostles he's the brother of james um, and uh, he's known for um, writing about um, the concept of love a lot um, he also uh, his gospel uh, is one that is speaks about the divinity of christ focuses on the divinity um, and we see some of those themes here um, s- similar style and theological theme are in this epistle to his gospel um, and he actually briefly mentioned some of the things here in this epistle that he wrote um, in the Gospel, and he assumes that the reader has already read um the Gospel um, as Saint John, as we 're used to from saint John is he n- he never mentions his own name uh in anything that he writes so in in his Gospel, whenever he writes about himself, how does he refer to himself? do you know he yeah, had the the disciple that the Lord loves right this is how he refers to himself, he never mentions his name also here in um, the epistle he doesn 't mention Um, His name at the beginning like we're always used from the epistles of st. Paul the very first word actually of every epistle is Paul Um, And he has a greeting at the beginning uh, To the church that he's writing to Uh, Here st. John. He doesn't mention his name and there's actually no introduction and there's no conclusion Um, And we we consider this one of the Catholic epistles, which means what? universal so it's written to everybody so it's not written to necessarily a specific group of people in a specific place. When, when St. Paul writes his epistles, um, of course, the, the words that he writes are beneficial to everyone in the whole church, which is why the church circulated his letters around. Um, but uh, here, St. Saint, uh, Saint John, when he's writing, he's not writing to a specific church to address the problems or the concerns in that church. He's writing generally. Okay, he's writing um, generally. Um, so uh, it's very pastoral in nature and is directed um, to the church um, as a whole. The time and place of the writing so it was written from the city of Ephesus toward the end of the first century um, after the year 70 AD so what's significant about the year 70 AD yes the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD so at this point after the destruction of the temple essentially the Jewish nation is destroyed like the the all of the, the the traditions the customs the worship the sacrifices Um, everything that the the, the Jews were practicing up until that time is essentially destroyed, okay? And that's why um, in this epistle, St. John is focusing more on the heretics. He's focusing more on the heresies that began to to rise up from the very beginning um, of the church, as opposed to um, so much the persecution that was coming from the Jews. Because we know that there was a very severe persecution, From the Jews to the Christians because the the Christians were, were essentially an offshoot from Judaism and those Jews and Pharisees they wanted to destroy the Christian movement right and so there was a lot of persecution that happened in the early church from the Jews and when you read about the missionary journeys of Saint Paul we see all kinds of persecution coming from the Jews in various places here we don't read about the persecution of the Jews because the Jews were not like like in a position of strength at this point in time it was more other uh, heresies that were coming up in the church, and one of the earliest heresies that became pretty predominant um, and started to harass the church was that of Gnosticism, okay? And we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but the, the the Gnostics, so the, the, the Gnosis is a Greek word which means knowledge, okay? And so the Gnostics were a group of people who claimed knowledge to the truth, and they believed that the only good thing that was created was The spiritual things only the spiritual things were good and all the physical things were evil of course we look at the physical things and we see that there's corruption in them we see even on our own flesh there's the corrupted flesh but it doesn't mean that the physical is evil because god created the physical right from the very beginning he created all of creation to be good and after every day of creation it says god looked at what he had made and he said it was good or very good so we don't consider that by its very essence the physical things are, are, are evil, but they can be corrupted. And actually, even the spiritual can be corrupted as well because we know that the, the demons and Satan himself is a spirit, right? So, um, so, so, so the Gnostics believed, again, that the spiritual was good and the physical was evil. And the spiritual was created by a good God and the physical was created by an evil God. Okay, and so there was these two gods that are kind of at war with each other, and this is like the war between the spirit and the flesh, right, as represented in these two gods. Um, Because they believe that the physical was evil, okay, so when we speak about the incarnation, and of course we believe that Jesus was fully man, and we believe that he uh, became incarnate, and he was fully God and fully man at the same time. And he experienced real suffering. He experienced real hunger and real thirst and all the things that a human being experiences, right, as a man. But the, the Gnostics, they said no. He was His body was like an illusion. It was an apparition. It wasn't a real body. Because if the physical were evil, then how is it that God could take the form of a physical man? right an actual man in the flesh this is like an abomination to them um that's why um in the early church because this gnosticism was kind of uh a developing heresy at the time the early church they they confirmed the understanding right um that the flesh and the material things the physical things um are good because god created them but man defiled them through his own evil actions right making the distinction that the essence of the physical is good right but we chose to corrupt them to defile them it is not that the essence of the physical um is is evil so that's kind of giving you like a sense of the circumstances at the time to give us some context as we're reading this i kind of what is the environment um that was there the purpose there's four primary goals that Saint John has in writing of this epistle, um, the first one is found in chapter one, and it says that our joy may be full. So he's giving us hope, he's giving us um, purpose, so that our joy may be full. The second is in chapter two, where he says that we do not sin, right? So our, our goal is that we s- we stay away from sin, also to avoid deceivers is the third goal, because again um, he wants to illuminate the early Christians as to the 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 role of these heretics that are deceiving people in the church and leading them astray and then finally the last purpose is to know that we have eternal life and to have confidence in god who gives us eternal life okay those are like four main themes that we might find uh repeated throughout this short epistle okay so we'll um we'll start with chapter one he says that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, considering the word of life. Okay, The first thing that you'll notice about this is what? Right off the bat. Yes. And if you want to compare it to his gospel. Just like the gospel of John, the very first verse in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Right? And all, like all of the, 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 the divinity, the theology of the divinity of the existence of God and, and, and the Logos, we find it in the very first verse, um, the very first part of John chapter 1, the gospel, and we find it here as well in the epistle of First John chapter 1. Okay? So he's saying um, that which was from the beginning. So when he is focusing on the eternity, the divinity, of god he's saying that which was from the beginning because from the very beginning god existed right before time existed god existed so he is divine he has he is eternal okay but this eternal god chose to manifest himself to us right chose to manifest himself to us that's why we have heard and we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled how is it that an infinite eternal god that is beyond, uh, beyond our senses could be handled, right? Could be seen, could be touched, could be heard. It's only because he chose to want to reveal himself to us, right? Who are limited. So he took a form that we can comprehend and that we can interact with, which of course is the, the form of the human flesh, okay? So, but he's emphasizing here that his incarnation was a real incarnation. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't someone who just appeared as a man, but he was really just a spirit. No, he was a real man, a real uh, human being. And that's why he says our hands have handled him, right? Like it's not like we just saw him from a distance and we saw him speaking right from far away. No, we have been close to him. We have touched him. And of course, St. John is an apostle. He lived with Christ for three years on the earth during his incarnation. He was present at the crucifixion. He saw him after his resurrection. He saw him with the wounds in his hands, right? And just as when St. Thomas, who doubted the resurrection, when Christ appeared the second time and he told him, come and put your hands in the wounds, he actually said this to all of the disciples. He didn't just say it only to Thomas. So all of the disciples would have touched him and seen and felt the wounds Um, that he had. So here he is refuting the heresies with his own personal testimony, saying, I myself have seen him, right? And, And this is what makes the testimony of the apostles so powerful, because no one can deny what it is that they have seen, right? They are not speaking about something that is second hand. They're not speaking about something that they were told by someone else or that they read in a book. They're speaking about what they actually experienced, what they saw, what they touched, the words that he himself said to them. And that's why, of course, when we read the testimony of all of the disciples, it's very powerful and very important because there is no interpretation in it. There's no, it's not something that is written and then later somebody else misinterpreted and then we read that interpretation. No, this is the actual raw, Uh, Testimony of those people who saw him. Okay? Um, St. John also was present at the transfiguration, right? And we said the crucifixion, the resurrection, right? And actually, at this time of this writing, it's very likely that St. John was the only remaining living apostle from the original 12 apostles. Um, Because we know that St. John, out of all the disciples, he was the only one who wasn't martyred, right? So all of the others by this time likely were martyred already. Um, And so he was the only one left. He was the only one actually to give that personal testimony because all of the others had, um, had already been martyred. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Okay, so the life was manifested. Okay, the life of Christ was manifested and we have seen and bear witness. So we are now who have observed him, who have lived with him. We are bearing witness of him. We are speaking about what it is that we saw and we declare to you. Okay, that that what is it that Christ taught us? We are declaring to you. And of course, Christ taught about eternal life, which was with the father. Right. And this was manifested to us. Um, This incarnation was not just a miracle. It wasn't just a sign. It wasn't just like God came and he did some fancy miracle to prove that he was God, right? The incarnation actually was for a purpose greater than just a sign. It was actually part of the plan of salvation because the purpose of it was to reunite us back with God again. That God became man so that man could become God. This is what Saint Athanasius said in on, on the Incarnation. And of course, when he says that man could become God, he's not mean literally to become God who is worshipped, but to become partakers of the divine nature, to become one with, with God, to be in union and communion with God, right? This is what he, his goal was. So his purpose of the Incarnation was a reunification, a reconciliation, a reuniting with God again. Yes? Why does he say the eternal life which was with the Father? What does that mean? Because because God is the only one who is eternal, right? God is God is the one who is eternal. He's declaring the eternal life which was with the Father, meaning the Father is the one who was before all ages. Of course, we know the Son is as well, right? The Son is as well. But he's focusing here on the different roles of the Trinity, right? Because the one who was manifested, the one who was incarnate, is the Son, and the Son came to bring us to the Father. Right, So he's focusing on the eternity of the Father and the humanity of the Son. Of course, both, the duality, the divinity and humanity of the Son. The Son came in order to preach to us in his incarnation to restore us and bring us back into the eternity of the Father. Okay? St. Macarius the Great, he says, God the incomprehensible descended to us because of his goodness and has put on the members of the flesh and emptied all the glory He became flesh and was united with it to take with him all the holy, faithful, and accepted souls with him and become with them one spirit, as St. Paul the Apostle said, so that the soul may live in complete harmony and may taste the eternal life and become a partaker of the undefiled glory. This is what the Son did. He came and he took our own flesh to unite with us so that we would have a place in Eternity with God the Father, okay? That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here he is saying that using this word fellowship and this is very important because we oftentimes speak about fellowship. We use the word fellowship a lot. What do we mean? When we say fellowship, when we use the word fellowship in the context of the church, okay? We aren't just talking about we like to see each other or we like to socialize together or we have friends from the church. Because he is linking here that what he says that we may that you may have fellowship with us. So he's saying to the people, right? That that so that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Trinity. Okay? So so the, the, the fellowship that we have with one another is not just a fellowship that's like like an earthly fellowship like this. It's, a, it's the triangular fellowship. The same kind of fellowship we talk about in, in, in marriage where you say you have the man and the woman with God and, the, and, and there's like a triangle of fellowship. right? This is why the purpose of fellowship in the church is for salvation. The purpose of fellowship in the church is for salvation. It is not just for fun. It, is, it isn't just because we enjoy each other's company course it's great that we enjoy each other's company but the the idea of fellowship is that god is in the midst of us this is why when we have fellowship and people are doing things or saying things that are inappropriate right we can't say that this is fellowship we can't say that this is a good fellowship right yes maybe there are people who can be friends that are committing sin together and they're friends they say that they're friends that's not fellowship that's not like a spiritual fellowship fellowship means that that our relationship is with each other with god in the midst right? So he's saying when you come to the church, you have both things. You have fellowship with us as other humans, and you have fellowship with God. And this is why the church is such an important part of salvation. You can't have salvation without the church, right? Because the church isn't just about a social service. It isn't just about social time, right? It's, it's a place where the people and God meet, right? And my relationship with God is one dimension, and my relationship with people is another dimension, but we have this fellowship, these three together, me, other people, and God together. This is why we don't speak about relationship with God as being purely just a personal thing by himself. Like a person says, why can't I just go into my own room, and I'm just going to pray to God, and I have a relationship with God. Yes, of course, we are called to do that. Christ himself says, when you pray, go into your room and close the door and have a relationship with God. That's true. But apart from the church there is no salvation apart from coming to the church and participating in the communion which is exactly this the communion is a fellowship with people and a fellowship with god right and we say that communion is necessary for salvation so unless you come and commune meaning you are part of the body of christ right the body of christ is is a group of people right? The body of Christ is not an individual. Like, Christ didn't come and say, you are the body of Christ. Like, you as an individual are, are the body. No, he said, the church as a whole is the body. And if I want to be part of the body, then I come to the church and I commune with the rest of the church, okay? Um, so th- that's a very important thing when he speaks about fellowship. What is it that we mean by fellowship? Uh, yeah, actually, Just a uh, small addition. You know, the, the, the Arabic word used for fellowship here is the word we use for communion like in the trans in this passages translation in arabic it says uh, um the word used is sharika and like the sharika is like when we say communion in arabic it's the mystery of sharika like mm. the, the, that's the same word so the fellowship yeah so th- so it's exactly communion it's yeah not yeah even like a similar word it's the same word. same word thank you and these things we write to you that your joy may be full so here's one of the themes that i mentioned is um, the idea of the fullness of joy okay so the world is filled with sorrow and we all know this very well you know anyone who is grown up from just childhood who begins to taste the responsibilities that are in the world the sorrows that are in the world the loss that is in the world the grieving the the things that we want that we can't have, all these things make us conclude that the world is full of sadness, right? It is full of sadness. It doesn't mean that's the only thing. But even the things that are good and the things that are worthwhile and the things that that bring happiness in the world, they're all temporary and fleeting, right? The, the, The people that we love most in the world, maybe at one point, they won't be with us anymore right, here in the world, the things that we love the most are going to, are, are just kind of like um, when Christ was speaking about like the grass that is burnt up in the oven, right, it is it is here today and gone tomorrow, so we know that the world is filled with sorrow, but the joy, as he was speaking earlier about eternal life, the joy comes from our understanding of where is et- where is life, what is life, what is the true life. Um, in Ephesians chapter two, it says that at the time, that sorry, at that at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the co- covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So for those people who were without God, they they lived without hope. There was no hope because nothing in this world was good to grant real abiding joy or peace in it. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So though you had no hope before you became Christians, before you became believers, now you were brought near by the blood of Christ, and you now have a reason to hope. That even though the world hasn't changed, and this is the fallacy that some people make who who are Christians, they believe that somehow by being Christian, it makes you immune from the world, or that somehow God is going to transform the world for you because you are now a Christian. But actually in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon says the rain falls on both the righteous and the wicked, right? Like, like being righteous doesn't mean that there's some sacred umbrella that is over your head, that now suddenly all of the rain that is falling on the world is gonna just trickle down and is going to miss you so that you don't experience it, so that it doesn't touch your life. No, actually it, it, all of us have experienced suffering loss things that we wish were different in the world the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked god did not come to change the world right he didn't come to change the world he came to bring us out of the world he came to make a way for us so that this world is not it is not the only thing that there is an eternal life that is after this world and that we continue into that life and that life then is the one where there is no sorrow that's the life where, where there is no sadness and there is no grieving and there's no mourning, right? So as long as we keep our eyes fixated on that life and on being close to God in this life, right, then we are undistracted by the, the things in this world that we think are going to bring us happiness that really can't. They, they really can't. So this is why he's writing. He's writing these things so that your joy may be full having fellowship with us, having fellowship with God, your joy may be full, right? Because now you know that you have communion with God and you have communion in the body of Christ. That is the source of joy, not careers and families and all these other things that maybe can bring joy for a time, can maybe bring some kind of happiness for a time, but can quickly fall away, can quickly be something that causes um, sadness or, or something that can be taken from us, right? Here our joy is full because our focus is on the eternity. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Again, there is a lot of similarity here to what he says in his gospel. In in his gospel in the first chapter, he says, this man came for a witness, speaking about St. John the Baptist, to bear witness of the light that all through him I believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So he speaks about Christ as being light, which means that the world is darkness, right? In the world, you are blinded to the truth. In the world, you are living in sin. In the world, you are suffering from all kinds of addictions. In the world, you have no reason to hope, right? Because everything is sad and and grieving, right? But in Christ, right he shines light on the darkness and you can for the first time see the reality as it really is there is a reason to have hope because life continues after death there's a reason to have hope because you continue to live in eternity and you you live in heaven with christ and so this is the the illumination right this is why we call baptism like the sacrament of illumination right the sacrament of enlightenment we see for the first time our eyes are open through the holy spirit we see for the first time that we are living for something beyond this world, right? That this world is temporary and that the light that God is, is not simply like the sun or like other lights that we see, but he is the source of all light, not just the physical light, but he is the source of all light. He illuminates our minds and our souls. He makes us to understand who we are. He makes us to understand where we came from and where we're going. He makes us to see the world clearly. He makes us to see ourselves clearly. He makes us to see our own sin. He makes us to see the things that are preventing us from reaching our full potential, in illu- he illuminates, right? He illuminates and makes us to see everything, which then allows us to walk the path of salvation. How can we walk the path of salvation when we don't even see the path, when we're not even aware that there is a path, when we're just walking blindly in the world? This is why the rich young ruler, when, when he went to speak with Christ, and he told him, what shall I do to be saved? When he told him the truth, He says what the thing that's keeping you from salvation is what is your money um go sell all that you have and the man walked away sad because maybe for the first time he now saw clearly and what he saw clearly he couldn't he couldn't live by it right he couldn't live with with this like his attachment was so much to the world and 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 not to the eternity to where he couldn't let go of the things that he loved so much in the world and, and, and this is why he walked away sad. He walked away knowing that he was unable to live up to the life that he wanted to live, okay? But this was the light that shined on his life that made him for the first time see what he was missing, right? See what was lacking. And this is a big part of our spiritual growth is for God to shine this light on us. And I guarantee you, if you really look, if, you, if the light really shines and we really look at ourselves, we will not like what we see, right? And this is the difficult part of the Christian life, the difficult part of the Christian life. Christianity is not just, let me hear all these nice promises of God and be happy and rejoicing and jump up and down, right? Christianity is God shines his light on us, and for the first time, we are exposed. We see all that there is, the good and the bad, and then the bad, we have to deal with it right? We have to do something with it. We can't just p- ignore it at that point, because once you see it, you can't unsee it. You can't ignore it, you know? Maybe we were, prior to this, we were content in our ignorance, content in not really taking seriously the things that are lacking in us, our weaknesses. But now that when we have seen it, right, now, now Christ says, if you want to enter the kingdom, then you have to walk the narrow path. And the narrow path involves dealing with those things that are the obstacles of our salvation and in the case of the rich young ruler it was his wealth and so what is it that christ asked him to do he asked him to do something very radical you know he didn't he didn't tell him something simple he told him to do something very radical like a radical amputation of what is it was his problem right because he knew that it was a serious problem in his life so here christ comes to illuminate he comes to, do, to reveal he doesn't just reveal us, but he reveals the the beauty of the eternal life that he has promised us. He says what? When you die, you know, in the Old Testament, when they died, they would go to Sheol. And Sheol is essentially Hades. And there was no hope there. There was no hope of the resurrection there. They didn't have that understanding yet. They didn't understand what it is that was there. But it wasn't anywhere that they looked forward to. That's why people just they just wanted to prolong their life as much as possible. It's why when God would reward someone, he would give them long life. um, Because there was nothing to look forward to in the afterlife in the Jewish mind, right? Whereas now, when we look to the afterlife, we say, no, that is a place of joy. It's a paradise of joy, we call it, right? So that is part also of the illumination, that God is illuminating for us what we have to look forward to, which is also another source of hope. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is another difficult verse, okay? Because the whole concept of faith and Christianity is related to not just what we believe, but what we practice. Because you can't believe something if you don't practice it. If you're not practicing it, it means you don't really believe it. And this is, of course, what St. James speaks about in his epistle a lot. But this is the, the bottom line. If we call ourselves to be Christians and believers, but we refuse to walk away from sin, then he is saying we are lying and we are not practicing the truth, right? Because maybe sometimes we want, to, we want it all. I want to be able to live my sinful life the way that I want because it brings me pleasure, but I also want the hope of salvation and the resurrection and all the promises that God gives, but I also don't want to let go of this life, right? I want it both together, right? And that is what is impossible. That's when Christ says you cannot serve both God and mammon. You cannot both have all of the the wealth of the world and also be a worshiper of God. So this is a choice that he's asking us to make. Just like the rich young ruler, he had a choice. Christ told him, either sell your money and follow me, or keep your money, but go your way, right? But if we want both, this is when we start speaking about lukewarm Christianity, the kind that in the book of Revelation, when Christ said that he will spit us out of his mouth the lukewarm. The cold is one who is clearly living a sinful life, and they are open, like they're transparent, they know who they are, they reject God, they live their life for themselves, and at least it's a logical, if you want to call it logical, it's a consistent, it's a consistent life. I've chosen to live away from God, I don't believe in him, or I reject him, or whatever the case may be, and I, I live my life accordingly. Or you have the hot, the hot are the people who um, they believe in God, and they live their life for him right? They live their life completely for him and their life is reflecting those principles and beliefs. The lukewarm, right? The one who is tries to have it all in in the middle, they're saying, I want this and I want that. I want to live for my flesh, but I also want to live for my spirit, right? But the two are at enmity with one another. So if we say that we have fellowship with him and we come to the church and we take communion and we do these things, but in my own life, I'm in no way trying to pursue God. I'm in no way caring about it. I'm just doing it because I was taught to do it because other people are doing it because I want to do it, but I'm not willing to let go of everything else that God hates. Right? So so if we are not doing it, then we are still walking in darkness. Though Christ has illuminated, though the the light has shone on our darkness, we still choose to continue in darkness. It's like as though you imagine like the the blind man, the man born blind if Christ came and he, and he came to heal him of his blindness, and the man said, no, I want to stay blind, right? I want to stay blind. I don't want to see, right? Because maybe I won't like what I see, right? I don't want, I don't want to see. So the one who continues to walk in darkness, even after the, sh- the light has shone, right? Then this is a person who chooses darkness. It wasn't that they are just born in darkness and that no one ever shone the light on them, and so they are just kind of like a victim of their circumstance, No, this is a person who was offered the light, but they chose not to walk in the light, okay? So if we go a step further and say, well, yes, I choose not to walk in the light, but I want to have fellowship with him. I want to have fellowship with God, with the church. I want to be in the body of Christ. I want eternal salvation. I want to go to heaven. I want all these promises that God has given, but I want it on my own terms. I will continue to live this way. This is actually what heresy is. Heresy is, we've mentioned this before, the word heresy means to pick and choose, So the person who is a heretic is a person who is picking and choosing. I choose certain parts of the scripture that I accept and I adopt because these fit my lifestyle that I like and I want. But the other parts of the scripture that I don't really feel comfortable with or don't want, these I reject them. I live live as though those parts don't exist. And I say that I have fellowship with God and fellowship with the church, but while I'm living this double life, okay, just selecting and choosing what it is that I want. So such a faith is useless to us and such a faith is very harmful because it's a state of confusion. The person who is far away from the church might at one point and one day be convicted and say, you know what, I'm living a life of sin. I need to change my ways. The person who is hot living in the church and with God, they have salvation and they're they're not lying to themselves and they're in a safe path, already on the narrow path. The person in the middle with the lukewarm heart is the person who believes that they are living a life of salvation, but they are actually living in darkness. These are the people who, um, who said, Lord, Lord, you know, when, 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 when they said, Lord, we, we, you preached on our streets and we, you, you did all these things, Like, why are you rejecting us, right? And then he says, get away from me, I never knew you. That is the frightening, that's the frightening one, right? Because those are the ones who see the Lord, they talk to him, they think that they know him, they think that he knows them, and they think that their life is just perfectly great, right? But then only on that last day, when they stand before him, expecting that God would open wide the door of heaven, he would say, get away from me, I never knew you. Very, very scary. These are the people who say that we have fellowship with him, but walk in darkness, right? And, and, and the people who do that are lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves, right? We lie and do not practice. The truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so if we are actually walking in the light, meaning the light he shines. You know, mean like you, you have this darkness, he shines the light, we choose to walk in the light. We are not walking in the darkness, we're walking in the light that he shines on us. Then we actually have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. This means that the person who is walking in light can still be a sinner. And actually, we all are, right? We, we are all sinners. Even the saints were sinners. It is not to say that in order to walk in the light, we must have perfection, right? Because that also would be impossible, right? But at least the person who is walking in the light is making an effort, is confessing their sin and repenting, is choosing to, to make choices that are taking into account all of this and not actively pursuing sin without any repentant heart, right? That is the difference between a person who is in the light and the darkness. The person who is in the darkness doesn't even try, doesn't even make an effort, doesn't even feel sorrow or regret, doesn't mourn over their sins, doesn't confess their sins or fear any repentance at all. That person is the one who is walking in darkness. The person who tries, makes an effort, who makes some sacrifice, who tries to do something, who cares about their spiritual life, right? that's a person who, what? The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he's saying what, this is a universal condition of all humanity. Everyone is living in darkness, right, at the beginning. Everyone is living in darkness. And so if you come and claim that you as an individual are not living in darkness, then he says what, you make him a liar, first of all, right, because God is the one who says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if he's coming and saying all have sinned, and I'm coming to say nope, I'm just fine the way that I am, Right? So the first thing is I've made God out to be a liar because what he is saying I'm contradicting. And we are deceiving ourselves because no one is without sin. Right. The fact that I have not noticed my sins, the fact that I don't take a good look at myself and conclude that I'm a sinner, maybe that's because I'm running away from that. Maybe because I don't want to examine myself it's because I'm afraid of what I will find. Right? Maybe I don't want to deal with this problem all at all and so I'm just kind of like avoiding thinking about it. But to say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Right? We are deceiving ourselves. Even those, as I said, who walk in light are not perfect. We, have, we all have sins. But when we expose our sins, when we confess our sins, then we are, we are walking in the light. Actually, that's one of the things the light does. The light exposes. When, when the light shines on me, I am exposed, and I can choose to confess the sins that are exposed. Um, St. Gregory of Nyssa, he said, pour before me a fountain of many tears, and I will do with you the same act. Consider the minister of the church, a spiritual father, and reveal to him all the secrets of your souls, as the wounds before the doctor, so you may be healed. Right? The healing comes from the confession, right? To confess. It is not to say that when we sin we are we are doomed. We are all sinners, right? When we sin we can confess. So there's four things here he says in the in these verses, these three verses, about What happens if we say we have no sin? The first is we deceive ourselves, as he said. We are lying to ourselves if we say we have no sin. Then he said the truth is not in us. The things that we say are not truthful. We are liars, okay? Also, we make him to be a liar because he declared us to be sinners. And then finally, his word is not in us, right? Because if his word is in us, then that means we will declare the same things that he declares. The things that he says are true, I also will say them as true. But if I am speaking against what he says, right, then the word is is not in us. Okay? Chapter 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Okay, so how do we understand this? What does this say? The goal is to overcome sin by being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And the reason we want to overcome sin is because we want to be united with Christ. So, so the goal is actually to be united with Christ. And sin is an obstacle between us and Christ. So we, we, we overcome sin through the working of the Holy Spirit that we have received in baptism and confirmation so that we can be in full union with Christ which is our goal. And we want to be in full union with Christ not just because we want to go to heaven, but because of love. Because we want because we love him. We want to be with him. All right? Just as we want to be with anyone that we love. But when we fall, because as we've established we are all sinners, when we fall, right? So he says if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Okay? An advocate. The word advocate, what is an advocate? What does the word advocate mean? (laughs) To advise? advise. Okay, maybe that's part of it. Hmm? To To defend. Yes, or to help. To defend. It's like a lawyer. It's like a defense attorney. Okay? So the defender, right, is defending us and declaring us to be innocent. He's declaring us to be innocent. He is defending us before who? Hmm? The judge, right? Right, the judge. Okay, so the Greek word for advocate is actually paraclete, okay? Paraclete is the word that we use to mean comforter, right? We translate it comforter when we're speaking about the Holy Spirit. We say the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, we translate it to be Holy Spirit, the comforter. And the word actually has two meanings. When speaking about Christ, it means like intercessor. The intercessor is the one who is like operating on my behalf, just like the lawyer is the one who goes and speaks on my behalf. He defends me on my behalf so that I don't say anything. I am someone else is taking that role of defender and defending me before the judge. The, this is like the intercessor. Christ intercedes with the father, for our sins before God the Father. Okay, um, this is not to say that somehow the Father is desiring that we perish, desiring for us to be condemned, and somehow Christ comes in as the defender and defending us from the Father. That is not what this is saying. Okay, what is he defending us against? If you read the, if you read further on, he says, and he himself is the propitiation. For our sins okay what is propitiation yes like the appeasement the satisfaction the fulfillment of what okay the 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 judge has already made a law and the law is the wages of sin is death that is the law so anyone who sins against god deserves to die and here we are saying but we don't want to die and christ came to die for our sins so that we don't have to die. So he is the advocate. He is defending, as he's standing before the Father and he says what, I have fulfilled the law. I have fulfilled the divine law, which is that the wages of sin is death, so that these no longer have to die. That is why he is the propitiation. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one who made the law, like he didn't break the law, right? Because God cannot break his own law. He didn't break the law, but he satisfied the law, right? And he took that as him being the satisfaction. Instead of us having to bear the consequences, he took the consequences on our behalf. This is what St. Augustine says about this. He says, If you should have a case to be tried before a judge and should procure an advocate, you would be accepted by the lawyer and he would plead your case to the best of his ability. If before he has finished his plea, you should hear that he is to be the judge, how you would rejoice? Because he could be your judge, who shortly before, as your lawyer, he is the intercessor, so let us not sin. However, if you sin, be sorry and curse it. Then you can come in the presence of the judge, trusting that he is your intercessor, and by your confession, you are not afraid to lose the case. Often, someone lets an eloquent advocate to defend him, and here you have the word himself defending you, so you will not perish. So imagine you go to trial, And your lawyer, who's defending you, after he finishes making his case, he goes and sits up to where the judge is and says, "I'm also the judge." So just as I was defending you, and as the judge, I'm going to let you go, right? So here, saying Augustine is saying, imagine how happy you would be, right? How you would rejoice because he who could be your judge, who shortly before as your lawyer, right? And so that is what Christ did, as the advocate who is also the judge, he. Uh, he defends us he makes an appeal on our behalf and he himself paid the consequence of the sin so that we do not have to bear that conseq- that consequence also it says what he is an advocate with the father jesus christ the righteous i mean the reason that christ is able to fulfill this role is because number 1 he is god but two he is righteous he committed no sin so he is not deserving of the consequence right for his for his own He is not deserving the consequence for himself. And so when he chooses to receive it on himself, he is choosing to receive it on behalf of us. Also, he says, this offering, this propitiation for sin, was not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So he's saying this sacrifice that Christ made was for the salvation of the entire world. This is why anyone is able to come to Christ. This is why anyone is able to accept him. Anyone is able to receive. Actually, we are the Gentiles, right? We are the ones who are far off. We are the ones who are not the original. We were were not the original children of God. We came to be accepted by adoption later on, right? We were the ones who Christ's death uh, applied to us as well, and we came to him because he offered salvation to us. Now, by this we know, that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. So as before, when he was speaking about if you say that you have fellowship with him, but you walk in darkness, you are a liar and you're deceiving yourselves and you make him out to be a liar and all those things. So here is the same thing. He's saying, um, now by this we know that we know him. So how is it that we know that we know him? Like people will ask like, how do I know if I am like a sincere and genuine Christian. How do I know if I'm, you know, like if Christ is going to accept me or not? Well, he says, if we keep his commandments. Are we trying to keep his commandments? Are his commandments important and relevant to us? Are they something that we try to abide by? Do we do we operate trying to live by his commandments? Again, we just said that when we sin, in this previous verse, so you don't think that I'm saying we have to do it perfectly. He says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But how do I know that I'm that I'm that I know Him? Am I making any effort, right? Am I making any effort to keep His commandments and to confess my sins when I fall? Okay, he who says I know Him and does and does not do uh, uh, and does not keep His commandments is a liar. Meaning, if I say that I know him, but I'm living my life according to my own rules, then I am a liar, and the truth is not in me. Saint Didymus the blind, he said, often in the scriptures, the word know means not just being aware of something, but having personal experience of it. Jesus did not know sin, not because he never committed it himself. For although he is like us in every other way, he never sinned. Given this meaning of the word know, it is clear that anyone who says that he knows God must also keep his commandments, for the two things go together. Okay, this is what it means to know God. This is what it means to love God. When we say I love God, what does it mean? Does it mean that I have warm feelings toward Him? I, I can't hug Him. Like I can't. There's so many things that we, as human beings, we think of in terms of love. Uh, I can't serve God in any way that adds anything to Him. Right? Like I there's not anything that I could do that he couldn't have done himself easier than me. The only way to love God and to and to to know to to know him is to follow the commandments he has set for us. He said, I want you to follow these commandments. I want you to follow follow this. We submit our will to him. This is loving, uh, this is loving to God. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Right? This person doesn't just keep the commandments of God uh, and sees them as burdensome. And he sees them as being like, okay, I'm forcing myself against my will to do these things and I'm really bitter about it and I really don't want to do it. This is the person who doesn't see the commandment of God as burdensome at all. He finds the commandments of God as as joyful, as sweet. If you read Psalm 119 um, in the... In the, in the book of Psalms, it's the longest psalm. Every single verse of that psalm is speaking about God's commandments, his statutes, his precepts, and how King David loves them, right? Like he sees the commandments of God as perfect. He sees them as being something for his own safety, for his own goodness, for, for something that is beneficial to him. He doesn't see the law of God as being burdensome. He doesn't see the law of God as being an obstacle or that God doesn't want me to enjoy my life and he's doing these things in a selfish way or whatever way right? He doesn't blame God for anything. He sees that the commandments of God are good. The judgments of God are good. The statutes are good. The precepts are good. And for that reason that I believe that all these are good, I will follow God wholeheartedly. Yes, maybe I will fail. I will fail because I am weak. I will fail because as I try to follow them, I will stumble. But again, we have an advocate, right? But there's a difference between that person the person who looks at the, the commandments of God and despises them. He sees that God is unfair. He sees that God is unloving. He sees that God is selfish. He sees that God is controlling, overbearing um, for placing all these commandments. Why are you asking me to do these things? right? And of course, in the end, we know that God's commandments are for our benefit. God's commandments are for our own good. As much as maybe we, we don't understand them, why is it that God has allowed certain things? Uh, or has not allowed other things, or what does he ask us to do, the things that he asked us to do, right? But the person who rejoices in the commandments of God, though he may sin and stumble, this is a person who truly loves God. Yes. So following, following and submitting to the church is God's will, right? So... Even the commandments of the church is something we should abide by, and we should abide by joyfully because maybe God is using these for my salvation in a way that I don't fully comprehend yet, but maybe one day I will. Like, I can tell you, most people who start fasting from a young age do so begrudgingly. I don't know anyone who starts fasting at a young age and they're just so thrilled and excited about it. And actually, they would never have done it unless they were forced to do it. But maybe that same person, 10, 20 years later, looks back at it and be like, I'm so glad that I learned to fast at a young age and I see the benefit of it. So sometimes there are things that we don't understand why. God is, is limiting us, right? It's a limitation. He is limiting our freedom, right, in, in certain things. Why? Um, but we trust that he knows why. Like there's a good reason for it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but, you know, and so I uh I I keep going through this back and forth from like, okay, there are times where I genuinely feel that way, like like at peace, right? But then it's just like like the the struggle against like the flesh is really difficult, right? And so is that a sign that is that, I mean, I'm sure tr- I know it's normal, but is that a sign that it's becoming um, becoming more lukewarm or in that r- regard or like or is that is something that comes with it as you know, with time you learn to, you know, like, submit more. Like you know, was it last week or at some meeting, like in the last couple weeks, I was speaking about how um, like the spiritual life is a is a marathon. Mm-hmm. It's not a sprint. Mm-hmm. And one of the difficulties in our spiritual life is the endurance. Because you can do anything for a year you tell me you gotta fast for one entire year but then you never have to fast again i think most people would be very happy to do that right so the issue is not with how difficult it is to fast the issue is how can we in, endure and persevere making good choices spiritual choices spiritual discipline for an extended period of time for the rest of our lives right So that's why you'll find that maybe at a young age, when someone is very energetic and hasn't yet experienced the monotony and the routine, that they'll do things with energy um, that actually over time will decrease. And a person, even though they are more experienced and they have more knowledge as they're older, of course, but they find that the spiritual practices that they had always done from a young age, are getting more difficult rather than less difficult. I'll read for you this verse in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth before the difficult days come, and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. If you read this, and I think most young people think that, you know, when you get old and you just like walk really slowly and your back is hunched over and your hair is white, then you're automatically just like a saint you're automatically just a righteous and great and wonderful person where everything you do is like, you know, you're so patient and you're so kind and you're so wise. That's completely wrong, okay? Actually, as you get older, you bec- it becomes more difficult because as your body is aging, as your memory is going, as your vision is going, as your mind is going, as, as you, are, you are, you've, you've, you've become less patient and the world becomes more painful than it was before, you are still asked to be faithful, you're still asked to be joyful, you're still asked to do everything and to be disciplined in your life and so on, even as you see the world kind of passing you by. You know, when you're young, you're like, the world is your oyster, right, like as they say. And when you're old, you're just kind of like on the side, you're just watching it, and you don't understand a lot of the stuff that people are even saying anymore and you don't even know what's happening anymore you know like think about like you know maybe the older generation today that they, they don't even know how to use a computer imagine how lost they feel in the world that we're in right and so there's a lot of humility and patience and acceptance and submission that has to that a person has to adopt to be able to accept that to be able to accept that you know what you're not in the mainstream society anymore you're you're over here on the side and people have forgotten about you right and the same is true because your energy level also drops so maybe when i was younger i could do prostrations and i could fast to late hours of the day and i can do this and i can't do that anymore right so being able to be consistent in spiritual practices and not just the external practices but in your spirit like your, your your love of God, your joy, as things begin to go, your joy is maintained. Um, that is not an easy thing, and I think the reason that you might find that people who are older tend to have more faith is because they were forced to, because it's like how I, I c- everything's taken, everything's taken from me. The only thing, the only thing left, the only one left is God. My children have left. My health is on the way out. Uh, This is a sad, depressing picture, right? The only thing I have is God. He's the only one who maintains. He's the only one who stays. He's the only one who doesn't leave. He's the only one who is eternal. He's the only one that I'm now, all I can think of is, I'm just hoping to leave this place to go to him, right? So the idea that things get more difficult in time is very true. And, 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 and that's why also at a younger age, maybe people cannot even imagine that there could ever be a time where I would lose faith. There could ever be a time where I turn away from God, where I go straight from him. Maybe as a young person and like very established in the church and all their future ahead of them and everything is going great in their life, they think to themselves, like I'm going to be here forever. But year after year after year, who knows what life will bring? And that is the true test of faith. And Christ says, he who endures to the end will be saved. Not he who is faithful for a year or a decade, but he who endures to the end. And how long is the end, we don't know. Everyone's life is different. This is why we are called to be very careful and alert and watchful, because the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Who, while we are getting weaker, he is not getting weaker. While we are starting to kind of like let go, He has been planning this from the beginning because maybe he knew that he could never get us to fall in our 20s or our 30s or maybe our 40s, but maybe in our 70s. That's when he's gonna get us. And he's patiently abiding, waiting, biding his time until we get there because all it takes is one time, you know? We could be faithful for 70 years, but before the end, he gets us. He finally catches us. That's why we are called so much to be careful because we don't want to give any place, any way for him to enter our hearts, for him to lead us astray from the truth, for us to begin to walk on the wide path instead of the narrow path. It's very hard. And, and we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. But to your point of what you're saying, right? Like, yes, it can be difficult and it can get harder. And that's part of the, that's part of the attack. That's part of the war. That we're in, right? Because the person who, you know, they say like it's not he who puts on his armor who should who should rejoice. It's he who takes it off. Like the the, the at any point in this war, right? We could be defeated, and we have to be very careful so we last to the very end. Probably wasn't the answer you wanted. No, was exactly the answer I wanted. Okay. <coughs> He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So he's saying, you want to know how to live a Christian life? Christ came and he modeled it for us. Like he, he showed us the life. If, in, in case anyone has any question of what that life should look like, Christ gave us the perfect model, right? What are some things that we learn from his life? <coughs> he was born in complete humility. Though he was the king of the universe, you know, he subjected himself to be born with animals, right? That even the poorest people maybe had a better place to be born than him. He was completely anonymous for 30 years before before he even started his ministry. Like, he was a nobody. Like, he was a nobody. Like, imagine you could do the things that he could do, and you knew the things that he knew. What would you do? You know, what would you do? Like, he was a completely anonymous person. You don't hear anything about his childhood, really. Right? You don't know. Um, Of course, he was sinless. And yet, he also submitted to his parents. He never cursed anyone. Right? Even those people who blasphemed him, the ones that he himself created, blasphemed him. His whole life, his whole ministry was characterized by suffering, that he could have voluntarily stopped. Like he, c- he could have ended, he could have given himself all comfort and he didn't. Um, even when uh, the, when, the, when Satan was tempting him and he said, jump off the temple and the angels are gonna carry you. He said, no, I'm not gonna do it. Um, when he could have turned the, like, like he could have made bread to eat. He said, no, I'm not gonna do it. Um, He offered himself as a sacrifice and he allowed himself to die in the most uh, humiliating way, (coughs) the same way that criminals die. This is what he chose for himself. Um, So he experienced all the sufferings of the world, like us. He didn't do any shortcuts. He didn't use any kind of tricks to get out of them. He experienced all the pain and the suffering and he lived his life completely serving others, right? and serving the destitute, serving the harlots, and the prostitutes, and the thieves, and the, the people who are completely outcast, right? Like those are the people that he served. So he's saying, if you say, like he who says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So he gives us very big shoes to fill. And he tells us, this is how I want you to live, right? So if again, if we want to know, if we, are, if, we, if we are walking in the light, walking in the truth, we say okay let's see what Christ how Christ lived and let's see how close we are to living like him. Okay? Which is of course very very difficult, but we we see him as the model. We see him as the target. And we see him as being what we could be if we are fully sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Because he is not asking us to walk like him while we are in the flesh because that's impossible. Like let's not even don't even try to live that way in the flesh. He's saying, but those who have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit and transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, you can grow to reach these heights. And we see it in the saints. Like the saints actually perform miracles that Christ himself didn't perform. And actually Christ said to the apostles, you will do things greater than these. Like the things greater than he did, you will do them, right? So so there is no shortage of examples, whether in Christ or in the saints, when we read about their stories to say like look at what it is that people have been able to attain those who are really close to christ right and this is what we are what we are called for this is a good stopping point i think um god willing next time we'll continue the rest of chapter two does anyone have any final comments or questions There's there's nothing wrong with wanting nice things. There's nothing wrong with wanting nice things. But, But what if those nice things, we cannot attain them except through sin? And some of the nice things that we want might be sinful. But there are things that are not. Like if God granted us lawfully to have wealth and we can afford to buy nice things for ourselves, there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But there is another person who might give up a lot of things that are very important in order to work more, in order to have more money, so that they can have the nice things. And maybe that's the problem, right? Like a person who sacrifices their spiritual life so that they can work more, so that they can have more money, so they can get the nice things. Okay, that's a problem. There is another step above this, though, right? We so, so we see, like, for instance, among the monastics. Their love of God is what... I am willing to give up even that which is lawful and good because my love for God is so so much that I'm willing to deny myself even the nice things that are lawful, right? Like like when someone goes to join the monastery, like it's not a sin if they didn't. It's not a sin if they chose to live in the world. It's not a sin to be wealthy, right? And to have nice things and to have big houses and to have nice cars and have it's not a sin. But these people said, I love God so much that I want to give up even what is good in order for me to be with him even more. Fasting is the giving up of a nice thing. It's not because meat is evil that we don't eat it. It's because it's a nice thing and because we want it. And so we choose to give it up, right, in order to attain something better, in order to train ourselves. So I'm not, when I say, you know, to answer your question, Having nice things is not wrong, but it's also not the best thing, right? Like, it's not the goal. It's not to say, just because you can obtain something, that you should. Just because you can, can, can have access to something for yourself, that means you must. No, actually, maybe we can choose restraint for the sake of our, our, our giving, for the sake of not wanting to be distracted by the world. We can choose it that doesn't mean that the thing that we're giving up is wrong. And if we chose not to give it up and we kept it, that's not wrong, as long as the thing itself is not sinful. But these are different stages of spiritual maturity. you know. So uh, there, isn't, there isn't one way to live, right? D- different people might choose to give up different things at different times for different reasons. But as a baseline, obviously, we don't obtain anything that is sinful and we don't live a, a sinful life. And not only do we not live a sinful life, we strive for holiness. We strive to be holy. We strive for righteousness. We strive and we, we, we incorporate in our life all the spiritual practices that we talk about to help us to grow. So a person who has rejected that lifestyle, that is a person who is living in the world. But living in the world, I'm not talking about whether you have a $50,000 car or $20,000 car or $150,000 car. It's not... I'm not counting it like that, okay? Yes. If you compare any of our lifestyles today with the first century Christians, none of us are simple. I, I can't say that the, that our lifestyle is characterized by simplicity. The way I like to look at it is what you obtain for for yourself relative to your means, not as an absolute measure. Because sometimes we, we look at things in an absolute sense. There's one time in the harvest meeting where this topic came up, and I mentioned how Bill Gates had said that he is going to uh, leave only ten million dollars to each of his children. And maybe for us, I would be like ten million dollars. Like I could live the rest. Of, I could retire now if I had ten million dollars. Like that would be the best thing ever. Ten million dollars. But for him, who's like a triple-digit billionaire, for him to leave only ten million dollars to his kids is actually very, very little. When, when, when you know, typically parents leave all their money to their kids, right? And, and he, he, he explicitly did that because he wanted his children to like learn how to work and be successful on their own and not just rely on his money. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it's all relative, you know, like there are some people um, that maybe like it would be not strange for them to own two houses. Like I have my house that I live in and then I have another house that's an investment or I have another house that is like a vacation home somewhere else and maybe for a lot of us, we would say in our community, it's like, okay, that's... I mean, not everyone can afford that, but it's also not like a... We don't consider it to be a kind of like, you know, indulgence necessarily. But there are people who can't even afford one house. So that person who can't even afford one house, when they look at maybe us who can afford two houses, would they say about us that we are not living simply? And they will say about us that we are overindulging? And they'll say, like, why do you even need that? But it's easy for us and our place to look at, but those who are higher than us and say, Oh yeah, you don't need this and that. Why are you spending, you know, all this money on this frivolous things and you're buying this many cars and you're buying this Yeah, it's easy to do that. But relative to your means and among that peer group that has those things, for them, maybe that would be considered meager. You know, the story of Umbarsenios, Ambarsenios he used to live in the palace and he was a teacher of the children of the kings. So he lived a very, very luxurious life because of his position. So when he went and and became a monk and he joined the monastery, it was very difficult for him to adjust to the meagerness of the monastery. And so while the rest of the monks were sleeping on the floor, he was sleeping on a bed. Not the nicest bed, but it's a bed. And so he was rebuked by the other monks and the monks told him, why are you sleeping on a bed? when we're all sleeping on the floor and the abbot of the monastery rebuked the monks and he said do you know where he came from he used to be sleeping in the most luxurious of beds and he has given up all of that to come here whereas many maybe these other monks who are already poor from the beginning maybe they're already sleeping on the floor because they couldn't even afford to have a bed so it's all relative what one group of people might look at another and say you are living an exorbitant life well maybe relative to what they could have had, they've chosen to give up so much. And that's why like, we're not called to judge each other, but uh, as far as each of us, like if we're asking the question about ourselves, um, the way I look at it is, if God granted us to have a certain amount of money and we are paying our tithes, right? The, 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 the part of the tithes is the, is the amount that God said is mine, right? He says, this belongs to me. If we are paying to God what is his, and some people might choose to pay beyond the 10%, you know, that that is the minimum amount, the rest of the money is yours. That doesn't mean you should squander it. It doesn't mean that you should just waste it, you know, on whatever. You have to be wise in how to spend it. But it's not a question of right and wrong. It's not saying, well, if I buy this specific thing, then it's wrong. It's not about the thing. Maybe it would be wrong because I'm choosing to spend money that I should have saved for the future, maybe it would have been wiser to save it or wiser or, you know, to do this and that. But it's not a sin to do so. It's not a sin to buy an expensive car. It's not a sin to buy an expensive house. And the definition of expensive is just very relative to who you are and how much money you have. And y- your friends might consider it to be, well, yeah, I'm I buying a house that's similar price to the rest of my friends. If you had wealthier friends, maybe your house would be considered cheap compared to their house, you know? So it, 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 I don't like to look at it in absolute terms. I like to look at it as what is within my means, and God granted it to me. And as long as I'm not hoarding it, I'm not greedy, I'm, I'm giving my tithes, I'm, I'm not attached to it. Now, being attached to it is, is, is a difficult thing to measure. And sometimes the only way we know if we're attached to something is when it's taken away. At that point, it's like, what is my reaction? We will all be disappointed if something is taken away from us. But will we curse God or will we accept it? Job is the perfect example. When everything was taken from him, he still praised God. He said, God has given, God has taken away, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean he didn't sorrow. It doesn't mean he wasn't sad because of all that was taken from him. But he didn't blame God for it because ultimately, his greatest hope was in God and not his possessions. So to know if we are attached to something, is to say, what would be my reaction if it's taken? But to enjoy it while we have it, there's nothing wrong with that. Actually, there were people who were very, very righteous people in the church who were very wealthy, um, and they had nice things, and that's Okay. I mean that in the world you have people who we call good people, right? Like people who, they try to be nice, they're friendly, they maybe do community service and whatnot, and there's a certain level of goodness, right, that they have. But to live according to the law of God is beyond the goodness of what St. Paul calls the natural man. So you know how he he gives three types of men, people. There's the carnal man the person who lives in sin. There is the natural man, which is what the world would call a good person. And then there's the spiritual man. And the spiritual man is the person who can live, who can even approach to live according to God's commandments. Because even the natural man, who would be considered a good person, maybe is not gonna be able to forgive their enemies. Maybe is not gonna be like when Christ said, when someone asks to go with you one mile, go with him two miles. Right, that is beyond the natural man. The world, the natural world would say, don't go two miles if he asks you to go one mile. Like, and if someone slaps you on one cheek, don't give him the other cheek, right? Like, slap him back. Like, that would be the natural man, right? Like, the, the world would say that's good, that's good. Like, that, that's good enough. What we're being asked to do as Christians is to go beyond the natural, right? The natural is what comes naturally right, in my flesh, in my body, right, what, what the human being is apart from the Holy Spirit. But in the Holy Spirit, we are able to approach what God's standard is, which is above the natural. Does that make sense? It's a choices, right? It's choices and struggles. And no, I can't say that we're always one or the other, right? There are moments where I maybe act according to the spiritual man in the sense that maybe I forgive someone who doesn't deserve forgiveness because I show them mercy. That's like a spiritual act, right? And other times I fall into all kinds of sin, and that's carnal, right? But we are called to approach the spiritual. We are called to go toward the spiritual, which is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're like capped at the natural, right? Then that would be the best you could ever hope to achieve. Yeah. Okay. We can pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask, O Lord, for you to help us to attain the spiritual and to put away from us the carnal we ask that you help us to walk as you walked. We ask, O God, that we have fellowship with you and with one another. We thank you, O Lord, because you are a forgiver of sins and you have mercy on us, though we do not deserve your mercy. We ask, O God, that you forgive us and you accept our repentance and that you bring us closer to you. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray. Thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name.